1: I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of BitCon.
2: This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Murder in Oregon is a production of iHeartRadio.
3: Shortly after Michael Frankie's murder, then-reporter Eric Mason attended a press conference held by Governor Neil Goldschmidt. At the time, Mason attributed Goldschmidt's demeanor to Michael's murder. Eric recalls what it was like.
0: Only later would we understand that I think what was going on there was... The governor thinking, my own secrets might come rolling out of the closet. My own skeleton might be revealed here in the process of a murder happening right, you know, in my inner circle. And I think that might have been also a part of how shell-shocked Governor Goldschmidt was that morning, was that he had his own deep, dark secrets. And I wondered if, you know, there was more to that very grim look on his face than I remember seeing that morning.
3: I'm Lauren Bright Pacheco, and this is Murder in Oregon. We want to warn listeners that some of the events and circumstances we're about to cover involve sexual abuse of a minor but these details are crucial to fully understanding the narrative around Michael's murder. On the surface, Neil Goldschmidt should have been eager to support a thorough investigation into the murder of Michael Frankie, The newly hired head of corrections he personally recruited was dead, murdered on state property. But instead, the governor went after members of the press for theories of corruption within the corrections department and dismissed the idea that Frankie's murder was anything more than a random killing. And he pushed back against the efforts of Mike's brothers and Phil Stanford.
4: What really puzzled me at the time, still puzzled me, was why he had resisted so strenuously, why he had resisted any real investigation into corruption in the prison system. First of all, the attacks uh public attacks against me and kevin you know where is this garbage coming from but as we know now there was a great deal of talk in his office we have the memo that shows that he wanted to keep the fbi out and he wanted to keep state senate from investigating corruption in the prison system so why it didn't make any sense because the corruption we were talking about had occurred before he'd become governor and he's a very smart politician all he had to do was blame it on his predecessor
3: Goldschmidt was, by many accounts, an effective governor. His economic reforms and policies brought the state out of a nearly decade-long recession. He passed workers' comp legislation and promoted children's literacy. A second-term victory was a given. Then he made a stunning announcement. Newspaper reporter Jim Redden recalls that day.
4: He unexpectedly announced that he was not going to run for re-election in the middle of his term. And I was there at that press conference when he did it. And it was a shock. I mean, it was a stunning announcement. He called a press conference and we didn't know what he was going to announce. He announced he was not going to run for re-election. Nobody said anything. Nobody even asked a question. I mean, and they turned around and walked out of the room.
3: Here's Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter for the Willamette Week, Nigel Jaques.
5: He had been uh, mayor of Portland in his 20s, appointed by President Jimmy Carter to be transportation secretary in his 30s. David Broder, the Washington Post columnist, who was sort of the leading national uh, political columnist of the day, had identified him and Bill Clinton uh, and uh, Governor Keene of New Jersey as sort of the three Democrats who might be president at some point. So Goldschmidt was really, at least for political insiders, a national figure of great promise. He was widely expected to run for a second term in 1990, and he did abruptly announce early in that year that he wasn't going to seek a second term. He was going through a divorce at the time, and um, the press accounts at the time attributed, left a great deal of uncertainty. Nobody was sure exactly why he wasn't going to run again. And it it sort of remained an enduring mystery in Oregon politics. Why had this person who was a phenomenon and, and a very successful, very effective politician, just walked away in the prime of his political life. Here's Phil again.
4: Well, it was odd for sure. I mean, he was a shoe in for a second term. The public explanation as I recall, was that uh, he was separating from his wife and he wanted to spare the children. You know, you always have to be just a little bit suspicious whenever a professional politician says he's resigning or dropping out of a race for the sake of the children.
3: And Neil Goldschmidt's secret, it turns out, was a pretty horrible one.
5: So I was uh, supposed to find out what he'd been doing since he left office. And um, in the course of reporting on what he had done in the 14 years since he left office, I I got a tip that there had been an issue in his past involving a babysitter. And um, so that led me to trying to find out what had happened back when he was Portland's mayor in the 1970s.
3: What Nigel uncovered was something beyond unexpected.
5: It turned out that he had over a period of a number of years, that number sort of remains in dispute, but at least three or four years uh, sexually abused uh, a neighbor's daughter. The, the young woman who was either 13 or 14. Again, that number is in dispute as well when sexual abuse began. But in either case, she was well under the age of legal consent. So when we at Willamette, Week, broke that story in 2004. It was a, a real bombshell because Goldschmidt, although he had left politics was really the kingmaker in Oregon. He was the most uh, influential private citizen in the state, and many of the elected officials and corporate officials in the state owed their position either directly to him or indirectly to him. So he had a sort of an unparalleled in Oregon network of influence, and so it was a major story at the time.
3: During his time as mayor of Portland, Neil Goldschmidt was regularly committing statutory rape with a girl who was barely a teenager. The Oregonian caught wind of Jaquist's reporting and attempted to get ahead of the story with what seems an apparent spin. Margie Boulay was a columnist for the paper at the time.
2: The Oregonian found out, probably because Nigel Jaquist contacted Goldschmidt answer questions. But the Oregonian found out Willamette Week was going to break this story. And whether they wanted to beat them to the story or whether they wanted, for some reason, to print Goldschmidt's version first, who knows? But the Oregonian brought in Neil Goldschmidt to a meeting with a hand-picked group of journalists and editors. And Neil Goldschmidt arrived with a statement he read uh, about his health Uh, and his heart problems, quoted doctors. The impression a lot of people at the meeting got was that he was on the brink of death, seriously, seriously ill. Um, And then there was a brief mention of a relationship that Goldschmidt had had with a 14-year-old girl back when he was mayor of Portland, and then the subject was returned to Goldschmidt's health. I have heard a recording of that and I took notes. I was not allowed to keep it. I was not given a transcript. I just was allowed to sit down and listen to it when I was working on my story later. But um, the reporters in the room were very respectful of him. They were very concerned about his health. I do not recall hearing anyone ask questions about the relationship with the girl. And if they did, the questions were not of serious concern.
3: But the Oregonian softball handling of Goldschmidt would elicit public outcry.
2: After the Oregonian story ran and the Willamette Week story ran, there was huge public response. The Oregonian got a lot of negative response because the headline used in the very first story about Goldschmidt's admission of a relationship was that he had had an affair, quote unquote, an affair. And people were rightly outraged that it had been depicted in the Oregonian as an affair when it was child sex abuse. It was rape of a child.
3: Here's reporter Nigel Jaquess again.
5: A lot of people were very uh, disgusted by his uh, conduct and thought it was a terrible crime and, and were very angry. There were also a lot of people who thought the story never should have been written, that it was history and that it was no longer uh, current or relevant, and that uh, there was no public purpose to be served by publication.
3: Throughout this podcast, we've seen the victimization of people caught in the crosshairs of politics and corruption lives twisted or destroyed by those with great power and little accountability. In 2005, Margie Boulay began interviewing the now-grown woman who had been the underaged victim of Goldschmidt, who was still one of the most powerful men in Oregon.
2: After the stories had broken, um, a short period of time passed, and then I got a telephone call at the Oregonian, from a woman about whom I had written in the past. She had been the victim of a crime, and she did not want the perpetrator to find her because the perpetrator had never been identified. And so I protected her in the ways that I was able to do that, using journalistic ethics and my own conscience. So she said, I have a story for you. I am friends with Neil Goldschmidt's victim. And she wants to tell her story, but she doesn't trust anybody in the press. And I told her that I thought she could trust you, and she wants to meet you.
3: Margie met with Goldschmidt's victim, Elizabeth Dunham, a name she hesitates to use even now. Elizabeth felt she could trust Margie and agreed to be interviewed.
2: She was 42, but she seemed older in some ways and younger in other ways. I believe that her emotional maturity stopped the day she became involved in a sexual relationship with the mayor of the town whom her parents idolized. (laughs) Um, I'm not sure she, she was ever able to fully mature after that. Physically, she looked much older than her age. She was very unhappy with the way she had been portrayed. But she was being portrayed as someone who was a throwaway kid before he ever approached her. And that wasn't true. She was very, very intelligent. She was a beautiful writer. She was insightful. She was generous. We had an agreement that she would call me. um, Because she was traumatized, because she had been used by so many people, The last thing I wanted to do was to use her. It could be no one will ever believe this, but the truth is, I really didn't give a damn about getting a scoop. I just wanted her story to be told. Because when the story was written, it was always from his perspective.
3: Elizabeth grew up in close proximity to Goldschmidt and his inner circle, which made her easy prey.
2: Her parents were huge fans of Goldschmidt. Uh, They lived in the same neighborhood. She even said frequently that her parents idolized him. And so she grew up idolizing him. Her parents, she said, worked on Neil Goldschmidt's campaigns for um, the city council and when he ran for mayor.
3: He was a frequent visitor to her childhood home, and that's where the abuse
2: began. It was her mother's birthday party. She remembered it very clearly. And Goldschmidt and she went down to the basement, and there was sexual behavior at that time, she said. And how old was she at that She said she was 13, and she was very clear about that. She said the sexual predatory behavior by him toward her from that point on continued on a regular basis. She and her friend told me that after school, in the afternoons, they would go upstairs at Elizabeth's house and sit in a particular window where you could see the street. And they would watch for the mayor's driver's car that took him home every early evening. And when the car drove by, because Goldschmidt lived in the neighborhood, if the lights on the car flashed, that meant that later that evening, Goldschmidt would come to her home and late at night, She would leave the door unlocked after her parents went to sleep, and he would arrive and she would greet him and they would go down to the basement and have sex. He would rape her.
3: He was mayor of Portland and flagrantly wielded that power.
2: Her girlfriends from those years Middle school, junior high school, um, early high school, when she was st- before she dropped out so she could be more available to him to have sex during the day, she told me, her girlfriends said they saw him grope her. They saw him grope her breast in front of them.
3: You heard that correctly. This young, vulnerable girl dropped out of school so she could be sexually available to Goldschmidt at any time.
2: She told me that she went to St. Mary's Academy downtown because it was a couple blocks from City Hall and she would be more available to him, that he had suggested that. Then she told me that she dropped out of school so she could be more available to him. He told her, according to her, "Um, you're so smart, you don't need to go to school. I'll give you a reading list. So she was in City Hall a lot.
3: And even as he was stealing her childhood and innocence, Goldschmidt manipulated her with false promise of a future together.
2: She believed for a long, long time that it was an affair, that he was in love with her. She told me that he said to her he would marry her when his children were older because he didn't want them to have a broken home while they were still in school.
3: And Elizabeth couldn't even turn to her own family for help or protection.
2: She told me the first person she told when she was... 14 or 15 was her grandmother and her grandmother reacted as if it was a great honor that such a great man would fall in love with you and and have an affair with you. Then later her mother found out shortly after that and she told me that her mother went on a bike ride with Neil Goldschmidt and said, I understand you're having sex with my daughter. And he admitted it and she said, do you think that's a good idea? And he said, probably not. And he said it would stop, but it didn't.
3: It was heartbreaking betrayal. A child knowingly subjected to abuse by the people who should have been protecting her.
6: Make Mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N dot com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand.
0: I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded,
1: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.
3: As Elizabeth got older, she began to fully comprehend the damage Goldschmidt had done to her.
2: She got angry. She looked at her life and her life was in tatters. And she wanted to make something of herself. She wanted to pull her life together. She did not have the skills to do that. She was too damaged and too sick really sick. But she still wanted to try. And she knew that she wasn't making it. So she said, she went to him and said, you know, I need to get a degree. And that's when he began giving her money for tuition for the community college in Seattle. He began pulling strings to get her accepted into places. And she started telling people. She started telling cops in bars. She'd be in a bar and she'd be drunk and she'd start telling cops. And some of those cops contacted me and told me that she did. And it was getting back to him. And she told me that she was given cash payments. This is long before the, the attorney got involved. She was given cash payments to pay her rent and to pay tuition to keep her in Seattle so she'd stop telling people in Portland. That's what she told me.
3: Eventually Goldschmidt's lawyers got involved. It was agreed that in exchange for her shattered life and silence, Elizabeth would be paid hundreds of thousands of dollars. Margie Boulay conducted most of her interviews with Elizabeth between 2005 and 2007. But the Oregonian refused to publish Margie's articles without fully naming Elizabeth, even though she was a rape victim. And they kept demanding more sources and information, even though it had already been extensively and meticulously researched by Boulet.
2: I couldn't understand why they were asking for more documentation, more witnesses, more direct quotes, more use of real names from people who might have been willing to speak to me off the record or be quoted without names. I couldn't understand why they were making it so difficult for this story to be told because if you went back and read the early stories about Goldschmidt's side of things, they just printed his side. I could not figure out why they would not run the story without her name. I later learned that several of the editors at the paper were close, personal friends of Neil Goldschmidt's, and I believe that they were trying to protect him. It's just my opinion.
3: It wasn't until four years later, in 2011, that the Oregonian finally published the story, and only after Elizabeth had died.
2: I was told that she died of complications from her alcoholism, but... There are so many ways she could have died as a result of the emotional and physical crises she endured. She believed, and I believed as a result, of what Goldschmidt did to her.
3: Goldschmidt, on the other hand, did not seem to suffer substantial repercussions.
2: He just walked away. I mean, yeah, the public knew, but his rich and powerful friends have stuck with him to this day. He owns a beautiful home in France, at least last I heard he still did. He owns a beautiful, fabulous home in the hills of Portland. I'm not going to say he got off scot-free because his reputation was badly damaged, but uh, the statute of limitations had expired. Otherwise, I doubt he would have come forward and admitted it to the Oregonian or to anyone. So he could not be prosecuted. His wealthy and powerful friends stuck with him They even gave him a party to make him feel better after the stories were first published, which sickened me, and made her cry. People continued to cover up and not say what they knew because they had benefited from their ties to this powerful man who rewarded people who kept his secret, in my opinion, and in her opinion.
3: The fact remains Neil Goldschmidt was only allowed to abuse Elizabeth Dunham because multiple people around him were willing to look the other way. Some of them were indebted to him, others had their own transgressions to hide. Here's Nigel Jaquess again.
5: I think the answer to why that could remain a secret for so long is the influence and the power that Goldschmidt wielded. So he had. Many protégés, as I mentioned, Governor Kulingoski was one, but there were many who ran the state's utilities. He was close to everybody who mattered in in Oregon, and most of them were people who owed him something and who had risen with him. So they they both had a reason that they owed him something not to divulge his secret, but they, they also, I think, perhaps in a more interesting fashion, would be uh, admitting something about themselves if the person to whom they owed so much was shown to be this uh, flawed uh, criminal, uh, uh, you know, essentially a child rapist. What would that say about them if the person that gave them their start or, or helped their careers was a terrible person?
3: Phil has another take.
4: If, as we know now, all these people knew about it, There were some who certainly didn't have Goldschmidt's best interests at heart that wanted to use him, or to put it another way, blackmail him with this information. And in fact, that's what I think is, is probably the best explanation for why he was resisting any decent investigation of the Frankie murder at the time. Law enforcement, the state police would have known about it. In fact, I think the Portland City Police knew about the girl back when he was mayor. His driver was assigned by police intelligence. There's a reason why police uh, departments do this. Uh, So they report back on what the mayor's doing. In fact, we know that the driver would go uh, drive past the girl's house and blink the lights as a signal. Yes, of course, the Portland police knew it. And there's no reason to believe that they wouldn't have used it against him to get raises, to to get whatever they want so here he is he's governor and once again his driver his security man bernie giusto is an officer with the state police do we really believe he wasn't reporting back to his bosses
3: and there
4: was something else one more thing that has come out uh, that that came out in the press and was all over the newspapers uh, at the same time and this probably explains why Goldschmidt was separating from his wife at the time. The driver was having an affair with Goldschmidt's wife. been a great deal of publicity on that.
3: A state police officer who was his personal driver was also having an affair with Goldschmidt's wife.
4: Yeah, he, I mean, he's, he's talked about it with me. He told me that Goldschmidt's wife told him that Goldschmidt was negotiating with the girl and her lawyers to keep her mouth shut. I also spoke with her roommate, and the roommate told me that during this time Elizabeth would call down to the governor's office, get Goldschmidt on the phone, and scream, you raped me, you owe me. Yeah, there was pressure on Goldschmidt to keep the lid on at this time, for sure.
3: And would that have been the same time as the Michael Frankie murder investigation? Oh, yes. At this point, we want to stress that we've reached out to Neil Goldschmidt multiple times by certified letter and voicemail for a statement or interview. And to this date, he has not responded to our requests.
6: Mother's Day is coming, and mom doesn't want flowers, she wants a cocktail.
1: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.
3: And then there was perhaps the most public victim of the murder and subsequent investigation other than Michael Frankie himself, Frank Gable. At the time, Jaquess's Goldschmidt article was published in 2005. Frank Gable had been in prison for nearly 14 years for a crime he remained adamant he didn't commit. When Boulay's article was published, it had been nearly 20 years. But throughout Gable's incarceration, there was someone who wanted to make sure his story stayed on the public's radar, no matter what. Phil Stamford. And Gable read Phil's articles in the Portland Tribune.
4: Over the course of years of exchanging letters back and forth, I came to see Frank as a person who, who was much more than uh, just uh, someone who'd been wronged. So obviously, he'd been wrongfully convicted, but here, here was someone who was really suffering. And from the beginning, it was easy for me to empathize, uh, to use an overused word, with, with Kevin and Pat. Uh, I, I talked to them and I, I could see what they were going through, but now I,
3: I was able to see Frank as well. And I'm sure it just kind of drove home that there were two lives here that were lost. You know, Mike lost all of his, and Frank was actively losing his life in prison. Oh, two victims for sure. It was through their correspondence that Phil began to grasp how much Gable had lost and the true extent of his suffering as his life eroded in prison. He's kept those letters, which span decades.
4: December 27th, 2003. Hello there, old friend. After these many years, it almost feels like you and I are friends. I read and reread some of your articles dozens of times, sent articles to anyone I thought would listen to or help me gain my freedom. But if you don't have the money, you can't ever buy an ear to hear. There is now no question, he underlines that, I can prove I did not do this crime, Phil. I've spent several years going over everything, over and over, I can prove the state police and the DA's office knowingly set me up to wrongfully convict me and use statements they could have easily proven were not true.
3: And Gable's desperation and hopelessness during his fruitless appeals process is heart-wrenching.
4: I feel completely in the dark on what's going on, that after 15 years, could this truly finally be the end of this insane nightmare? Oh God, how I hope and pray it is, Phil. No words can express what it's like to go through something like this.
3: A former meth user and drug dealer, Gable fought to clean up his life in prison.
4: I told my homies I'd stop everything and change my life. I've done that, Phil. I've stayed clean and sober, and life is better than ever. I will not let you and Kevin down, Phil. I will make you all proud and glad you believed in me and fought to help me.
3: With new clarity, Gable also began to understand the extent to which he was manipulated and set up.
4: This case of mine proves tweakers will say anything. It's the tweakers who made up all the lies against him, of course. They dogged me so hard, Phil. One minute they had me crying, the next mad and yelling, then crying, kept me up all night. He's talking about how they, when they first gave him the polygraphs and they um, said they, they, they caught him lying, asking me questions like... Frank, you were so spun out on drugs. Could you have done it and not remember? I told him hundreds of times, no way, I did not do it. I was not there. I don't know who did it. Over and over. Sergeant McCafferty got so mad because I kept saying that that he choked me until I blacked out, but I'd still not admit to something I did not do. It's only because I was raised so hard and had suffered so much as a boy. They could not make me say something or admit to something I did not do because I am strong and... In my heart from years of abuse.
3: He wrote Phil about his childhood, his background, personal things about himself beyond the case and beyond his conviction. Gable was just a man wrongfully accused, wasting away in prison. Phil would send him stamps and books. He even shared Gable's prison address in one of his articles so people could send him Christmas cards.
4: Dude, are you insane? I started getting all these cards from people, and one had a clipping of your article you did and had my address in it. I honestly can't tell you how good it felt to get so many cards and words of support. Thank you. Though I'm a very shy person, and after all, I've endured, I tend to isolate a lot and not trust people, but I have started writing them all a thank you note. I'm not going to let what happened in the past hinder my life in any way. These people were kind enough to reach out and show kindness to someone they don't know at all especially to a person in my situation.
3: But Phil's articles and public support couldn't change the relentlessly depressing, crushing reality of Frank's life sentence.
4: I just wonder, Phil, if it will ever end. I've been so depressed as of lately. Some guy hung himself several months ago and that really bothered me a lot. You wonder if he had the better idea. It's all bothered me almost more than I can endure. I'd never let another person die, never stab someone like that, never let someone just die or leave them hurt. Guess that's what bothers me a lot. They have people thinking I'm a piece of shit like that. You know, Phil, what I really don't understand is how is a system meant to bring justice, allow a man to spend 19 years now wrongfully convicted? How do the people of Oregon allow it? Because it really doesn't affect their life. So who really gives a shit anyway? They're going to dinner, a movie, camping, so on. Who honestly gives a damn about a guy like me who they don't know?
3: But soon, Gable would find a small seed of hope that would blossom into something much bigger. On the next Murder in Oregon... This case has been controversial from the start. When Gable was arrested for the murder, he claimed he was set up.
5: I believe that I walked into a complicated drug ring and really don't know how complicated it was until now.
3: And you think maybe that drug ring had something to do with Frankie's murder? I believe so, yes. He has filed multiple appeals. Then, a lawyer emerges, willing to take on the nearly impossible odds.
4: I talked to Kevin, <laughs> and he said, Yeah, I cried like a baby, and I, I said,
0: uh, me too. Murder in Oregon is hosted by Lauren Bright-Pacheco and Phil Stanford. Executive producers are Noel Brown, Lauren Bright-Pacheco, and Phil Stanford. Supervising producer and lead editor is Taylor Shacoin. Sound design by Tristan McNeil. Story editing by Matt Riddle. Written by Phil Stanford, Matt Riddle, and Lauren Bright-Pacheco. Music written and performed by the Diamond Street Players and mixed by Taylor Shacoin with music supervision by Noel Brown. Additional music by Tristan McNeil. Archival elements courtesy of KGW in Portland, Oregon, the station behind the podcast Urge to Kill. Murder in Oregon is a production of iHeartRadio.